0: Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are continuing our Magician's Watch Through and talking about Season 3, Episode 2, Heroes and Morons. Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens in this episode? Sure.
1: We witnessed an animated explanation of the Tale of the Seven Keys, launching our hero's quest to find them. And Fillory, Elliot and Fenn prepare to travel in a sentient boat, the Muntjack, to retrieve the first key from After Island. The Fairy Queen demands that someone she trusts go with them, who turns out to be their now-grown child, Frey. During the voyage, Fenn dotes over Frey, but Elliot worries about the extent of the fairy's scheming and whether Frey is actually their child. They arrive at After Island, where the island's priest refuses to surrender the key, claiming he needs to protect the islanders from a deadly monster. With Frey and Fenn's help, Elliot reveals that the priest is killing the islanders himself and blaming their deaths on an illusion of a monster he conjured with the key in order to remain in power. Elliot and his family depart with the key, leaving the priest to the vengeful islanders. Meanwhile, Quentin, Julia, and Josh follow reports of a drunk bear and look for Mayakoski and his magical batteries. Katie and Alice begrudgingly join the quest for their own purposes, and the group follows a trail of chaotic magic to ultimately find a suicidal Professor Lipson, who used Mayakovsky's battery to perform magic to bring joy to people's lives one last time. Quentin stops Professor Lipson from ending her life, but later Alice flees the group when her warning kitten explodes, and she realizes the lamprey is nearby.
0: Saddest part in the entire show.
1: (laughs) Quentin deduces that Mayakovsky's lover Emily has the remaining battery, but Katie steals it before he can get it. And the episode ends with The Tale of the Seven Keys adding a new chapter, but Quentin becomes possessed by a wriggling monster before he can read it.
0: Yeah, so why don't we get into it? What are your magic moments from this episode?
1: Well, I do just really like the animation of The Tale of the Seven Keys. So
0: cool. Very well done. Yeah, the style is really great. Mm-hmm.
1: I like how it's like a bunch of layered 2D art
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, that kind of moves alongside, but has this layered quality to it. It feels very storybooky. And the colors are really striking. So yeah, mm-hmm. I just find it very, very fun to watch. Yeah. I also just enjoy the fact that Josh is getting more and more involved. You know, we open the episode of Josh just hanging out with them, trying to figure out about what to do to find these keys.
0: Yeah, which is funny because he's a herbalist Mm -hmm. right so he wouldn't be in their housing but now that there isn't any magic it probably doesn't really matter so he just like goes and hangs out in the cottage
1: absolutely i i I kind of also took from the end of the last season the classroom of students at break bills having josh and them Mm -hmm. made it seem like there's probably been a loss of many students so there is yeah a lot of Reorganization of the college.
0: Yeah, and Julie is not even a student. Totally. <laughs> Neither is Katie, but yeah. it's like, hey.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I, it's really cool seeing Josh there and bringing his expertise in as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In that conversation, when they're deducing that the bear was Mayakovsky, <laughs> point four, that bear is a dick. Yeah. Being the best evidence that. Okay. It's Myakoski. Very good. And then I also just liked some of the new dynamic that Frey brings in.
2: Hmm. Uh,
1: I mean, for one, just the fact that her name is short for Frail Human. (laughs) so Very good.
0: It reveals a bit how uh, fairies think about people.
1: (laughs) It does, yeah. (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But just how Fen... Starts like swooning over her and doting on her, <laughs> and Frey like doesn't want her to. Like it's very much like teenager who oh, doesn't yeah. want their parents around. It's, it's great.
0: It's the unimpressed teenager with an overeager parent.
1: Yes, precisely, yeah. uh, which is communicated so quickly. You know, I just, the scene of them walking towards the Mount Jack on the dock, like, I can visualize so clearly still just their physical body language, and mm-hmm. it's, it's just very well done. But I also noticed near the end of the episode, you know, when Fenn and Frey help to explain to Elliot the issues that are with the body that make it seem like it wasn't a shadow bat that killed it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just really enjoyed seeing their different experiences and expertise coming in to provide that information. Mm
2: -hmm. Like,
1: it reminded me of a really well-balanced role-playing party. Sometimes you can have a balanced role-playing party that's focused on, like, combat, where one character's a tank, one's a healer, one's a one that deals damage and things like that. In this case, though, it's another kind of balanced role-playing party, which is just they yeah, bring in different sets of knowledge and types of knowledge.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so, ultimately, the conclusions that they can make together are much more astute than anything they can make on their own. Mm. Yeah. Which I, I find in a, a show like this really, really great. And yeah, it just, as much as it's fun to see Elliot and Margot, you know, joking about the tropes of the now adult child in genre shows, uh, I also think that Frey is providing some some interesting new dynamics to the group.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: But what about you? What are your magic moments?
0: Yeah, I love how the book, The Tale of the Seven Keys, adds on to itself when they've acquired the first key, you know? Like, it's such a cool way to kind of show the agency and the journeys and movement of the plot through like the actions that our characters are taking. Uh yeah, it's just it's really cool and it's really interesting because theoretically those chapters could be wildly different depending on who is going Mm. on these quests and how they acquired the key and all of that. So yeah, it's it's just really cool. Oh, that is
1: a really cool idea. I mean I'm I didn't even think about that before. You know, I always thought of it as just, it reveals itself as, as the time comes.
0: Mm. But
1: the idea that it also responds to their actions is a really, really cool idea, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's what I think. I mean, I guess there's a the possibility that it's just the, the main character of the story, her journey, mm-hmm. that unfolds, but I feel like... Either way could...
1: It's also presented in such a, a mythical kind of way.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, these
1: aren't characters who are named. They're, you know, archetypes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like it's a legend. And so that story itself, as stories have, it can evolve depending on the circumstances mm-hmm. and the needs of the present. So, yeah, that that's my, definitely my new headcanon. That's really cool.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also really appreciate, you know, something continued over is just Katie and Julia's interaction. Mm. That it's like, it's a new season, but for Katie and Julia, not much time has passed. And so the broken trust, the feeling of betrayal that Katie has, and frustration with that whole situation that went down with Julia unilaterally deciding what to do... Regarding Reynard, um, yeah, I just I like that Katie is not just ready to be like, yeah, okay, everything's fine. I understand what you're saying, but she's just like recent history doesn't do much for your credibility when it comes to you me in a plan you mm-hmm. know and so it's just she doesn't trust that if they're working together for th- this aim that when it comes down to it, her voice, her motivations for it will be taken into account which mm-hmm. yeah, makes sense and and is realistic. Yet she will pair up with the group in order to try to save Penny. Totally. But she will also steal the battery and leave to try to to save Penny. So I mean and and you get why. Oh my god, Penny. I know. He's like, I felt like it was my time and I just wanted to be with I you. I'm know. like, Penny! He's like dying on the ground in, in an alleyway. Exactly, yeah. in his suit, but with, oh, oh,
1: Penny. Oh, Penny.
0: And then, of course, there's a, a, you know a couple of great lines, uh, as always, when Tick Pickwick is trying to say asshole, but he <laughs> says ass ditch, ass trench. <laughs> it's just those are great terms, which maybe I'll have to use um, in in general. But uh, also, I love when Margot and Elliot are talking, and she says. Unearned imperiousness, your defining quality <laughs> until you earned it, <laughs> which oh, yeah, that I is think a is great. Line. Is it's a great line for Elliot for sure.
1: Yes, yeah, that is. But a I think
0: it's line. also a great line for her. Totally, totally. You know, she she would apply to him, but I think yeah, it, it definitely fits her. Mm-hmm. But why don't we move on to our next section, which is setting in society. What were you noticing this episode?
1: Yeah, so one thing that kind of sparked something for me was when the tale called the magic user who does the curse a witch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've heard of hedge witches, but the show's about magicians. And mm-hmm. this kind of distinction between the two, I think, is is interesting. Uh, you know, obviously the hedge aspect highlights the difference between being a classically trained, formally <laughs> trained magician and being outside of that. But yeah, I think there's also something to being a witch, being seen as less formal, as more ad hoc kind of learning, you know, you, you teach Doing yourself.
0: potions in a little shack.
1: <laughs> exactly. And having a relationship with magic that's more Natural and less about the study of magic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which I find yeah just just kind of interesting that, that that's introduced here in a new way.
0: Also, like fear surrounding an idea of a witch, uh, obviously a prejudice against witches mm-hmm. with witch burnings and uh, yeah. Generally, I think there's a slightly more negative connotation attached to witches, which you know now some people own, you know, and, and I love it. But, uh, yeah, it it is interesting. Like, ah, magicians, (laughs) but you're not magicians, even though is Julia not a magician? Is Katie not a magician? You know, Marina not a magician?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it very much also brings to mind the, world of terry pratchett where he has a, mm. v- a clear distinction between witches and wizards which also has gendered implications and mm-hmm. you know uh is yeah just i think very interesting in how these characters interact with society
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so yeah it, it just the the different term brings about so many new connotations
0: yeah totally yeah i do appreciate the magicians it's like magicians and witches. There isn't any gender divide Mm -hmm. amongst them. It's like Pete is a hedge witch the same that Marina is. And most of the other characters we follow are magicians, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I had a couple questions about some things that we see in Fillory. The fact that the Muntjack designed herself is, you know, sentient wood that is considered to be the wisest boat that knows how to sail, you know, has this wisdom accumulated, which already is just so fascinating. You know, we've, we've seen sentient wood in the past, but a boat is something that typically is constructed, but then there's ideas of it constructed itself. So yeah. Was there sentient trees or sentient wood that decided to serve a different kind of purpose in this way?
0: Oh, fascinating. See, I took it completely the other way. I took it that, There were, you know, we know that there was a sentient forest and Philorians just decided to chop some of them down to make a boat because it would serve their purposes. And this is part of why the sentient forest sided against Fillory. Mm -hmm. As they said, Fillory has a long history of arboreal disrespect. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking of it as like, yeah, we're just going to use you because you'll make a better boat.
1: And, and then maybe it like redesigned itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it's still going to do what it does uh, and try to, yeah, maybe make it's, make what happened to it its own, you know, like still have agency within that, but it was still just taken away from its forest mm-hmm. and chopped down. That, that's my perspective, but yeah.
1: Totally. Yeah. It, it raises those kinds of questions. The other thing that it makes me wonder is how it's gendered as a she, and mm-hmm. is I mean, that most
0: boats are, but true. It's, you know, weird too. Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> but there's a whole weirdness about gendering an inanimate object.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But
1: then gendering a sentient being. Yeah. I think is its own, very problematic, uh, and and you know interesting kind of task.
0: Especially when trees like where people often put gender, which is not right is like according to reproduction right right? but like trees don't have at all the the same type of different reproductive capabilities trees all have the seeds and they all you know so
1: yeah or like you know i know that we in when in my biology classes you know plants parts were still defined as like the male and female but every plant had both
0: exactly you know so they're, they're all uh Non-binary (laughs) trans.
1: So, yeah, I just, I found that particularly interesting um, and
0: And, wanted to to know
1: more about the Munchak's history.
0: Yeah, and we'll we'll get a little bit more later. Good. Just, just a little bit.
1: The other thing is Father Poe, the priest of After Island.
0: Oh, dear. uh,
1: Which, you know, is... Awful in many ways, but the fact that he's a father and a priest,
2: Mm -hmm. I'm like,
1: okay, what are you a priest of? We haven't heard of any religions of Fillory. We know that they had gods that we've met and seen, you know, but are there religious practices that are connected to the worship of those gods or are they connected to other worship? Worship of, yeah, existing beings or spiritual beings, you know, the... He's clearly kind of sitting in as a clergy figure within what seems like a kind of Christian mentality. Uh, you know, you the word "father"
0: mm-hmm. reminds
1: me of uh, a priest
0: having the key around his neck instead of a cross. Yeah,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's just you know what what does all of that mean in uh, in Fillory? Is you know, they're not diving into, and I don't expect they will.
0: Uh, <laughs> no. I don't think we'll ever see After Island people again. No.
1: And I just meant of, of religion generally in mm. Fillory. Mm-hmm. But, uh yeah, it's just another thing that sparks questions in the world building that I find fascinating.
0: Mm. And do you find any connections between that and, like, historical priests doing incredibly problematic things, including...
1: I mean, Genocide certainly, yes, and, of course. You
0: know.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, I'm I'm not a religious scholar myself, a religious historian, um, but certainly, you know, in my world history class, we talk about how the church had a major impact in, like, European life in the medieval period, not just because it was a powerful institution, but because it shaped the cosmology of the world and that truth was obtained through the church and the concepts of the world and morality and gender roles and everything else were more often than not established through religious teachings. And so, yes, that brought in a lot of abuses of power and abuses of, you know, well, we're going to shape reality in these specific ways. So I think there could be a really interesting metaphor in him using illusion to Mm. shape the, you know, a a perceived reality for these residents of Actor Island.
0: Enforcing it upon their reality.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, how magic kind of comes in to connect with that, I think, is, is interesting. Because, you know, in European history, we see the rise of scientific thinking being one of the ways of challenging religious authority over truth, with a new paradigm of how do we reach truth? Well, we do so through the use of logic and uh, deductive or inductive reasoning and yeah, scientific methods and, and all these other kinds of things are new ways of finding truth about the environment and the world and morality for philosophers. In what has often been described as pre-industrial society of Fillory, uh, you know, that's not really what's challenging this. Um, but Perhaps you could argue that Elliot, as a child of Earth, brings in that kind of logical thinking, that, you know, uh, science-based kind of idea, even though he's a magician. Uh, the yet yeah, the deductive reasoning that they utilize to, pr- you know, prove that the villager was killed by a person and a knife, you know. Yeah, I think there's some interesting parallels that are, that are being drawn there.
0: Mm. I don't know
1: how purposeful they are, but uh, some, some interesting stuff. Yeah. But my last thought was a a little bit more historical and social because Elliot gets off the munt, Jack, and declares himself king of After Island. (laughs) And I
0: hereby declare After Island a province of Fillory. Exactly. What are you doing, (laughs) Elliot?
1: Colonialism within colonialism at that point. And it's... I think, obviously, highlights the the problematic nature of colonialism and, you know, declaring land yours based off of your own beliefs, ideas, and military, rather than the needs of the people. And I think the show does not interrogate that very well, because ultimately, the episode could argue that it leaves them better off than they were before, because their abusive leader is overthrown. But... Mm -hmm. That's typically not how colonialism worked. <laughs> but yeah, I just was also thinking about, you know, what does a king, oh, you know, someone who declares you a province of their country, what does that king bring to the locals? Because in most early colonial relationships, that was the diplomacy. It was, okay, we're gonna declare this in some ways part of our province, or we're gonna set up a post town here, or we're going to set up a colony here. And the indigenous inhabitants would diplomatically engage with them, but would typically do so in ways that were asking, okay, so what are you bringing if you're bringing this colony? What are you bringing to us? Oftentimes that was economic opportunities for the elite of the indigenous people when there were not military conquests when it did just stay in diplomacy in the building of those colonies. And we don't see any of that here. We don't see anything about Elliot providing anything to this society. He doesn't bring justice or defense or economic trade or anything else that is seems like it's going to better their lives.
0: I mean, I don't think colonizers can ever bring justice.
1: <laughs> True, but, you know, the, the concept of, of justice, mm. you know, uh, is just, yeah, it, it's, it's all not included. And so I think one aspect of this episode, you know, tying up that entire story in a very brief window, it does not really engage with these important questions that I appreciate that the last season was at least touching on. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be a, a colonial king and a good king? And here, you know, maybe the argument is that, well, Elliot only cares about magic at this point, and he cares less about the the ideals of being a good ruler. And so he's going to, after island declaring himself king because that's the best way of him getting the key mm-hmm. but then that is colonial you know yeah. and it's stripping them of their resources
0: earlier when they were going to go on the trip and they did some work on the Jack, and you know he was like i will remind the council that this is not a democracy mm-hmm. which is what towards the end of last season he had wanted to try to it's true yeah establish in in Fillory. and so Uh, Yeah, I think that we see him trying to restore magic at cost to maybe his own ideals, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is not good. I do think, like, at least there was the bit where, well, I'm going to leave this community to deal with their oppressive leader however they want to rather than like, oh, we're going to take you back to Fillory and execute you or, you know, whatever the situation would be. And he doesn't seem to have any desire to really rule over them Mm -hmm. in any way, but that doesn't make it not problematic.
1: Yeah. Well, what are your other points for second society?
0: Yeah, I thought that um, there was a direct parallel between Professor Lipson and her talking about how Mayakovsky could have never made the batteries without her. Mm. Yet she's not given any credit for that. And he has them and she has to take it from him. You know, it's just very often throughout history, women have had crucial contributions to whatever the developing... A system or invention, or you know, whatever totally. it is, and they're so often not credited with that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, I, I thought that that was a direct parallel. And the other thing I was thinking about is the meta way of the magicians pretty regularly bringing up stuff in our world that they know about and are fans of, or you know, whatever. And so, when Elliot goes below deck of the Jack mm-hmm. and it's like so much bigger and nicer and everything underneath you know he just says nice trick mm-hmm. because He's very familiar with an undetectable extension charm, as anybody who's read Harry Potter or watched the movies is pretty familiar with, you know. And so it's it's not like, whoa, what what's happening? <laughs> you know, like we have in something like Doctor Who. Every time they yeah. go into the TARDIS, people are like flabbergasted, where he's just like, Oh yeah. Magic.
1: Magic, of course. Cool. Yeah, yeah
0: I've seen this thing before. Uh, even if it wasn't a fictional thing, of course it's possible mm-hmm. with magic. So, yeah, I think that's just a cool way to be like, this story is peers with all of these other stories and, and the characters know it.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I love that moment because he's clearly impressed, but he's also not flabbergasted.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But why don't we go into our next section, which is themes and schemes. What were you noticing?
1: Yeah, one that I'm not sure how much they're they're trying to actually engage with, but I thought there might be something in there, was how with the Tale of the Seven Keys, we're introduced to a daughter who is a disappointment because she's not a son.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the same episode, we see Frey and... We have a child who's introduced who is not a disappointment in the gender they are, but in the age they are, where Elliot, in particular, is not entirely excited, you know, and and trustful that this is his child. And so, yeah, I don't know if there's something they're trying to explore there of a kind of reunited child and or a child's relationship with their parents. So it's just something that I'm kind of leaving an asterisk next to, and being like, oh, I wonder if, if the season's planning on exploring that further, or if there's... It just is a, a kind of coincidence. But the the main theme that I really saw as central to this episode was Professor Libson's kind of call to action. You know, her, her desires, her schemes, really, of what she wanted in this episode. And this idea of how the loss of magic is obviously very impactful, and how her last activities with magic were to create a sense of wonder, even for a small group of people, even for one last time. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, we see these characters who are upset about the end of that wonder, and the conversation that Quentin has with Professor Lipson, I think is really illuminating, where he talks about, you know, they're raging against the dying of the light, They didn't know how good they had it, and that all they did before was complain because they couldn't see how the world without it was a world of darkness. So yeah, this I think ties to what we've talked about with the the changing color tone of the show, um, and the ways in which a non-magical world are presented, the ways the characters are experiencing it, that there is this, yeah, lack of wonder, and how that is... uh, mirrored with a show that is trying to it's called the magicians is trying to provide us with wonder you know with entertainment and so in Fillory, we still get things like the Munchak. we still get these really amazing events that occur um and then we have these traces of it that are left over on earth so yeah i think this episode does an interesting job of providing a example of how some people are taking this really hard and how it is really upsetting their lives and the way they they look at the world. I do wish that professor Lipson wasn't also represented as like seemingly almost like a jilted lover of Mayakovsky's and that being something that leads her to be suicidal or to, to be upset in this Mm -hmm. way. I don't think that's the only thing they're doing. I think there's still some, some interesting and, and compelling elements at play, but yeah, it's just something that, that I find the show is clearly trying to project this dichotomy between the world of magic and the world without magic.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if they said it, but I kind of assumed that Professor Lipson was married to Mayakovsky because remember Emily Greenstreet had said, he said that he would leave his wife.
2: Oh, interesting. That makes sense. So
0: I was assuming it was like his incorporate bond is broken and he doesn't come back to me. Mm. He comes back to this young, not even very great magician, Mm -hmm. you know, and not that to be like, oh, well, then it's fine for her being suicidal. But like, I could imagine that being on top of losing magic, her job, trying to teach magic theory to students seeing those students leave their school might be closed and then she won't have any job you know like all of it together just being like too much and the fact that this battery invention part of it was from her yeah. you know and then so like all of it just being like no i'm done with this but yeah it still is uh, phrased in a problematic way where uh, it's like let's use pejorative language towards emily mm-hmm. n- not mayakovsky although obviously she's mad at mayakovsky but you, you know that that can happen in society where it's like why are you calling the woman a name you know yeah. but uh, yeah that's besides the point besides <laughs> the point
1: <laughs> well what are your points for themes and schemes
0: yeah one of them kind of piggybacks off of what you were saying I was thinking of the continuation of the idea of over-reliance on magic.
2: Mm. Uh,
0: we saw that, obviously, last season with famine in mm-hmm. Fillery because the crops were dying because magic was so unstable because of the godly floater. <laughs> <laughs> and now... The crops are having problems yet again because they can't schedule the rain, which, you know, maybe it's like, well, even if you can't schedule it, would still fall. But maybe they are also growing things in places that normally don't naturally get that much rainfall totally. or whatnot. Also, their money to pay people, <laughs> to pay the guards at the castle and everything, uh, to pay for any type of projects, you know. Gold is not being produced by these beetles. Mm -hmm. So they're struggling yet again. I mean, you can't build tons of infrastructure and all of this overnight, right? And so I don't think it's necessarily that it's like, oh, well, they didn't learn from the magic being unstable because of Ember. And now they're in this problem again. I mean, there could be maybe parts of that, but I think things take a long time to develop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so even if they were in the works for some of that, which they probably weren't because they were at war and they were trying to, you know, revive the wellspring, you know, like that that's where their energy was focused and now magic is gone again and they're struggling. But I think it's interesting because then you have... Josh, Julia, and Quentin on Earth being like, magic is gone, but Google isn't. Mm -hmm. And so us really seeing that they can still do things. They still have a lot of resources at their disposal that can help them in their endeavors, you know? And that... Not that Google is magic, and obviously Google is problematic. (laughs) (laughs) But... It is a very, very helpful, almost magical tool that so many of us have at a finger touch away, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I think uh, I'll, I'll be interested to see if they kind of continue this, this over reliance on magic and then how they creatively get around that using things that are magical.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Another thing I think we have in this episode bringing in is when Josh says, quests are not solo ops. Mm. And I think that kind of goes off of what you were talking about before when they were on After Island, with Frey and Fen being able to have really essential knowledge to bring to light some of what's going on that Elliot alone wouldn't have known. And... I think this whole season we'll see a lot of that. That, like, these quests will require different combinations of characters to acquire these keys. So I think that, um, yeah, that's a, a maybe a kind of theme for the season. Mm. And then the last thing I think that is significant and goes with the title of this episode is Margot when she's talking to Elliot before he leaves to After Island. And she says, What you're doing is very heroic. But what's the difference between a live hero and a dead moron? One dumb decision. When it's be brave or be smart, you know which one. Which, I'm just saying, she is such a Slytherin. (laughs) I appreciate it. It's like, when it's be brave or be smart, Don't run in there like a Gryffindor with a half-baked plan. Be smart in what you're doing. It doesn't mean that you can't be brave while being smart. It just means you know when to be brave. (laughs) When are the right moments? That well, yeah, I think more in the Slytherin mentality of the outcome, mm-hmm. right? It's
1: when is this bravery going to be useful?
0: Exactly, when is it going to have the effect that you want versus it's always right to be brave? Yeah, uh, which you know, I think that there's some good debate between like do you only do something because it's useful? Do you only do totally. something because of the consequences it has versus it just being right to do? But yeah, I think not only do we see a lot of Margot's perspective in that, but yeah, I think it's definitely an idea I kind of want to think about as we continue watching and to see if it plays out in, in other ways throughout the story.
1: Yeah. That's a really interesting dichotomy that's kind of put out there and, particularly for, yeah, a cast of characters who, you know, the book really gets into this even further, but if you're a magician, you have smarts, you are intelligent, you have the ability to memorize languages and to do mathematical equations and, you know, tie that with magic, like all these other kinds of things that, that require so much study and hard work. And so... You know, you could come in with the expectation like, "Oh yeah, well, they they are the smart kids. They are smart, and that's why they're they're in this position." But having magic also made it so that it was easy for them to be brave. You know, mm-hmm. like you're talking about with the the over reliance on magic. They were able to walk into Fillory, never having been there before, to try to attack the beast. They were able to do all these things to become kings and queens, you know, because they're like, well, we could, we always, always got magic that will help us out. I, Elliot can just duel the king of another <laughs> nation, you know. They didn't have to always be smart the same way, but without that magic, they can't be brave the same way they were in the past. Or arguably their bravery means more because they are they have more to risk
2: mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm.
1: yeah so they have to use that intelligently and I think that also connects to Elliot's growing understanding over the series that he has responsibility to others and he's important to others and that him dying would be hard on Margot and Fen, mm-hmm. and bad for the kingdom and all these other kinds of things that uh him being smart versus brave isn't just about him risking his own life, but also risking the impacts that it will have on the rest of his world.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think we can kind of see this idea too going back, like even in the first season, them doing the probability mm-hmm. spells, right? To decide whether we're going to try to make a deal with the beast or we're going to try to get rid of the beast. Uh, also when they went to the plover house, you have Alice and Quentin wanting to be brave. Let's go back in there and try to save these kids. It's, but Ellie, it's like everything that we've has says that there's nothing you can do about this.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Sure. You can be brave trying to do this and die for it, but like, that's not smart yeah. and it's not going to help them anyway, you know? So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Other times of that may be coming out.
1: Absolutely. And actually, that kind of leads me to my POV, if that's all right. Oh,
0: great. Let's do it.
1: Because I wanted to talk about Elliot. We see him, you know, obviously take Margot's advice inwards, where he confronts Father Poe and this illusory shadow bat, uh, but only after he has heard from multiple perspectives that this is probably what's going on. He's done some investigating. He's he's used his smarts rather than just confronting something that he sees as wrong or he thinks might be problematic. He doesn't just go out and fight the Shadow Bat before, you know, the first time it shows up. He uses his, his intelligence over bravery. He uses smarts over bravery. But I find this an interesting dynamic also with his other major plot line this episode, which is the arrival of Frey. You know, he's already, even before Frey comes, unhappy to have Fenn coming with him. Mm -hmm. And then Fenn comes with and Frey, who he is very clearly suspicious of, Mm -hmm. you know, with good reason. She's explicitly a spy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The the great moment where Margot clarifies the Buffy plot line. Yes.
1: Very, very good.
0: Well, technically.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But his conversation with Fenn while Frey's sleeping about her is, I think, also really illuminating. And, and when he says that he wants to feel that phrase is theirs, mm-hmm. but he doesn't, and he's worried, clearly,
0: yeah.
1: I think is, in its own way, his decision to be smart instead of brave.
0: Because mm-hmm.
1: if it's true that he wants to feel this way, that's its own kind of vulnerability. To feel... Like, you have some responsibility, some kinship with this person who you can't trust. And...
0: To try to love them and then maybe get betrayed. Exactly.
1: And so I think that Fenn is, in some ways, being more brave here. She is letting herself be entirely vulnerable Mm
2: -hmm. with
1: Frey. And she is, you know, in some ways, problematically, (laughs) over-identifying with herself now as a mother to Frey. That leads yet to new vulnerabilities and Elliot is being smart he is not letting himself do that even if he does want to in some ways or at least part of him wants to Mm -hmm. but instead he is trying to he understands the danger that the fairies present and he doesn't want to maybe hurt himself but also again to lead to decisions that could have bad outcomes you know you mentioned the conversation about buffy you know which is great and funny but also highlights the way that him and margo are kind of logically this out too where they are thinking well this is a trope that we've seen in lots of other stories this <laughs> makes this less believable and that i think is yeah his another way that he is kind of trying to be smart rather than brave
0: when was it ever this simple exactly
1: right <laughs> Yeah, and it's funny that you think about that because that's the last thing that I was thinking about with from Elliot's point of view, which is that his performance repeatedly in this episode is really strong in the ways that his physical performance communicates so much, which is important for a character who can be quite arch and sarcastic.
2: <laughs> so yeah,
1: when he says nice trick when he's walking into the Munchak interior, but then he is clearly excited about the the prospect of voyaging in this beautiful environment. And, you know, and
0: the aesthetics. And the aesthetics, exactly. What's the point of going on a quest if the aesthetics are shit?
1: Precisely.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yeah, when he sees the key and he says, it can't be this easy.
2: <laughs>
1: but you can also see some hope in his face. Some like, wow, we actually found this key he didn't see the book. He's only gotten messages about it. You know, like there's, I can imagine that that there's part of him that is still thinking that he's going on a wild goose chase that still thinks that, you know, maybe this won't go anywhere. And so seeing the key, yeah, that easily, he's obviously still being suspicious and critical, but he's also, yeah, just has this kind of face of hope, which I think is then also really interesting when he takes the key for the first time and he can clearly feel the magic in it.
2: Mm -hmm. And
1: the way that he communicates the kind of excitement and comfort of feeling magic again is just really a great performance. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't even say anything there. He just takes it and reacts. And that reaction, I think, is really strong and and reveals so much about how much he's missed magic and how even touching it in this way changes his entire body and the entire Mm -hmm. way that he, he responds to it. I saw it as communicating that he felt a yeah a, an excitement to feel again for the first time in so long, but also a sense of like oh I'm I'm me again I'm at home again I'm comfortable again in a way that I haven't been for for so long. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just uh, I love Elliot. <laughs> it's a great character happy to watch him.
0: (laughs) Always. Always. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting, too, because at the end of his part of the episode, I think we see, even though he's, like you were saying, has had this suspicion, this distance between him and Frey, and all of that, we see a pretty charming, funny interaction between them three. Yeah, and I mean, sure, it involves a lie <laughs> telling her that the key is gold, and that's and magic, and that's why they're bringing it. When you know, that's not why he's doing it. But, but then Fen is like, "Don't talk to your father that way." Oh go to your room. You know, it's like they're playfully having kind of fun. And it seems like he's finally having a good day Mm -hmm. in a way, you know, because things have been so difficult for him for so long. And in this case, it was that easy, Mm -hmm. you know, that he was able to find this key so quickly (laughs) he was able to get it without any protest from anyone, you know, once they had revealed the manipulation of Father Poe and also in that process revealed the manipulation of Father Poe, which as a character who has been severely manipulated before Mm -hmm. by Mike, aka Martin Chatwin, I could imagine that seeing this small a village under the manipulative, oppressive position of someone they look to for something good, you know, to, to mm-hmm. them, and being able to, like, pull back that curtain so that they are not still being duped. You know, I imagine all of that could make him feel, this was a productive <laughs> journey, <laughs> like, Sure, Frey is still here, but now he's a little more lighthearted and can joke about the situation. And hey, Frey did provide some crucial information for us. And yeah, him seeming a little more positive or hopeful than he usually is. Totally. Which is nice. Yeah. I mean, he does sorrow well, but it's nice to see him happy. Yeah.
1: Well, who did you bring to talk about?
0: So I wanted to talk about Quentin this Mm. episode, at least this far. (laughs) I know we're only on episode two. (laughs) There's plenty of time for being problematic. (laughs) We'll see how, how much that comes up. But here, I think in this episode, he is continuing on this trajectory of maybe being a little better than he was in the previous two seasons. I think first it was really interesting for him when they mentioned that the magician who did this asked for where's the nearest building you can jump off of. He knows exactly where it is. He says it's an abandoned building, easy roof access, great views. It was the number one Midtown spot when I was into that kind of thing as a possibility. And I just found it so striking how honest he was with julia mm-hmm. that like he feels like he can just state it as it is and i think that probably with anyone else he would have phrased it maybe a little bit differently mm, yeah yet with her she knows about him having to go into psychiatric facilities she knows about his long-term depression you know and so now he's able to just say exactly exactly why he knows and yeah this is something that he seriously considered uh at, at one point and so or at many points mm-hmm. probably and so i think that, that that there's a vulnerability in being able to in, in saying those things to your friend and and i think that it does show a bit more, even though he hasn't always been a great friend to Julia. There's a few times Julia was not a good friend to him, but it does really show like the closeness that they have had in the past and that they still have and that they've been able to get back to despite all of the severe things that have happened in, in their relationship.
1: Absolutely. It also makes made me think that maybe Quentin is more accepting of that part of him Mm. because he's currently in a hopeful place. He's on a quest. He is, like, not in the spiraling dwelling Mm -hmm. place, Mm -hmm. but instead he's kind of moving that. So I think you're absolutely right that clearly this is part of him and Julia's relationship. But I think that, that it also made me think about just the kind of cycles or mentalities that you can have and how that can impact your own relationship with your past, your feelings, and, mm, and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I personally feel like it's much easier to talk about things in the past or ways I felt in the past, things I struggled with in the past, rather than, like, the raw pain of the the present, mm. and so it's like, oh yeah, I mean, I can think about, oh, I was abused in this way, or this happened, or whatever. And like, it's not really a big deal to me. Yeah. <laughs> but trying to talk to somebody about something I'm going through at the moment is is much more difficult for me. And so, yeah, possibly similarly mm. for him.
1: Because just constantly projecting our depressions onto Quentin. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: And then I think the, the part that really is where I'm like, yes, this is part of the best of Quentin is when he's talking to Professor Lipson. Mm. And he, he is the person who can help her come down from that ledge because he understands not everything she's going through, but he understands the feeling of wanting it all to stop. Mm -hmm. right and you know it it can be very very easy for someone who has not had suicidal ideation to be like oh you have so much to live for and you'll get through this and blah 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 and it's just like (laughs) as a person who has suffered with depression for so long it's just like no I don't want to hear from you (laughs) you know it's like somebody who has had similar thoughts who has had similar pain as you, like...
1: Who's made plans mm -hmm, to kill himself, yeah.
0: mm -hmm, Who's probably been up on that ledge before to see what it looked like. That's the person who can understand the feeling and try to help with what they think this person might need to hear. The way he starts talking is so, like, saying, oh, what you mm-hmm. did was so smart. And yeah, that's so frustrating. And You know, just, like, validating all of these things about her feelings and her person. And I think in those moments, it very clearly becomes not about the battery. That's the quest that he's on. Yeah. They need this battery to Do more magic so that they can bring magic back, right? But when he sees this person in this vulnerable, depressed state, he is going to do whatever he can, not to save the battery, but to help her. And, yeah, I just think that that's...
1: Brave, not smart.
0: I I mean, sure, yeah. Uh, Well, it's, it's... compassionate not yeah,
1: smart totally and yeah you're absolutely right that is what's touching about his character is that desire for compassion fueled by his empathy
0: well and i think that like where we've seen his depression impacting him and the story in negative ways many mm-hmm. times here we see what he's been through and him using it instead of using it to just try to run away or instead of him having to fight it quite literally in the uh ellisworth downs you know Mm. like here it's not like oh well it's good he had depression and suicidal ideation. no but here he is able to use something of his experience for something um more positive and and for caring for another person that's outside of his quest. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: But why don't we go into our final little segment, which is the title. What do you think of Heroes and Morons?
1: I don't love the term moron.
0: Yes, I did look it up, like I mentioned that I was going to. And uh, on Wikipedia it says, moron is a term... Once used in psychology and psychiatry to denote mild intellectual disability, the term was closely tied with the American eugenics movement. Once the term became popularized, it fell out of use by the psychological community and was used more commonly as an insult. Is similar to imbecile and idiot, right? And so it's like, anything term that is closely tied with the American eugenics movement, nah. Yeah, we're not
1: usually fans of those. (laughs)
0: No, and anything that's, like, termed as persons with certain disabilities that you're using as a pejorative, no, 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 no. Including the word dumb, right? It's like, oh, somebody who can't speak, we equate that with being stupid. Right. how insulting. lame and yeah another exactly example. Like, yeah how horrible very very bad term yeah
1: but clearly from our conversation the dichotomy between the bravery and smart I think is a mm-hmm. a, a good one so I think yeah brave or smart might have been better mm-hmm. um, but I can understand why they wanted to find nouns that mm-hmm. uh, that you know were instead using that term is is unfortunate um yeah but it's also i think a uh, a really important theme for the episode
0: totally yeah yeah, yeah. i just uh, i i wish it had been like heroes and fools maybe mm. because fools even though it can be used in that way it's not only used in that way because for narratives there are different types of fool archetypes so you have the serendipitous fool hmm. who just like happens upon success or mm-hmm. or whatnot. Uh, you have the wise fool mm-hmm. is a different type of archetype, which in something like the Good Place, Jason Mendoza is definitely a wise fool, right? And so I think fool, also looking at the definition, it can mean silly, stupid, lacking judgment or sense. And so I think it has a broader definition and is used for different things. And so I think foolish is a much better word to use. I mean, also we can do unwise, but if we're looking at nouns, yeah, I think if we, if the title was just heroes and fools, I think it would have made a lot more sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right, well, that's going to wrap up this week's conversations. So what's happening next time on The Magicians?
0: So we are going to be on episode three, The Losses of Magic, where we get to see more dysfunctions of the Quinn family.
1: Oh, yay. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. We hope that you'll join us on Patreon so that you can join us for our monthly Zoom meetups. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at Lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! (laughs)